As the world's largest network of remote professionals, we're here to help. Upwork is giving $1 million in talent grants to projects that counter the ongoing impacts of COVID-19. By connecting existing teams with independent experts in tech, creative, and operations to help save lives, to support communities, and rebuild the economy. Go to upwork.com slash work together to learn more. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week, will nanobots destroy the world? Can food allergies be inherited? And are ants telepathic? It is Q&A time. We have a panel of experts who are ready and waiting to tackle your sci-curious questions. So if you have any foodie thoughts, mathematical musings, or an insectious thirst for knowledge, this is the show for you. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Well, first up, let's meet the panel of people who are going to answer your questions. We have Giles Yeo here. He is a geneticist who studies the brain control of body weight. And you're doing a bit of an experiment yourself for the BBC TV, aren't you, Giles? I am, yes. I'm currently on a vegan diet um, in order to see whether or not being vegan can be healthy. So what does that mean? You're exclusively eating vegan food? I'm I'm exclusively eating, you know, nothing with a face, nothing with a mother, and therefore just eating plant-based stuff, plant-based food. You've been very diligent because I offered you a biscuit outside and you you said no. You know what? I normally would cheat, but the problem is because I'm being bled and poked and weighed and and all kinds of stuff, I feel that if I cheat, maybe it'll come out through my blood markers. Because the other day you and me were at a festival the Cambridge Science Festival, and I saw you with a packet of Monster Munch. Are they vegan? They are vegan. But you're just making that No, up. no, 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 no. They are definitely vegan. So are Oreos. <laughs> other, other cookies are available. If you have anything to do with diet or anything to do with how your guts work and how your brain controls your body weight, send your questions in for Giles Yeo. Now, up next uh, is Bobby Siegel. He's sitting just to Giles's right. Bobby, tell us a bit about you. Hi. Um, so I'm a secondary school teacher of mathematics, but I'm also doing a research doctorate on maths anxiety. So my life goal is to help make maths a little bit less icky for the public. <laughs> your, your other claim to fame is you did very well on University Challenge. Yes, you? Uh, I mean, last yeah. year me and my, uh, my rival Eric Monkman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it as scary as it looks? Because when, when we do it, you know, we're all kind of closet quiz geeks here. Yeah. When you watch this on telly, there's something about the pressure of, of having to try and do what, if you just write it down, they're very easy mm-hmm. kind of mind-tangling questions. But when you have to do it under that pressure, I always go wrong. Is, is it really, really bad when you're trying to do that uh, for real? Absolutely. I think under the cameras, spotlights, you know, there's no second chance to re-record something. And with Twitter, people can be quite unforgiving. So you've got to be very judicious <laughs> in how you answer questions on air. 
Now, you, a little bird, told me, are a bit of a rap artist. So um, <laughs> you, you use rap in order to get yeah. people into your programs and into your maths projects. So we thought we'd put you to the test. I've got some, some music. Are you ready? Yes, I'm always give you, ready. Got always a little ready. bit of a bed for you here. So okay. uh, rap away. Bobby Seagull, everybody. Student seems to see girl, you can call me Bobby. You see, maths of me is more than just a hobby. Two twos are four, and four twos are eight. Starting with your tables would be just great. Area of a circle, pi r squared. Pi times two r, circumference if you cared. Y equals mx plus c, a straight line. End the gradient, see the intercept, be fine. Trigonometry is all about the angle. Ratio, sine, cos, but don't get in a tangle. Numerator over denominator. Get it right or seagull, see you later. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. And do you do that in the classroom? Yeah, I do that. I, again, something just to put the kids up, they'll say, so have you got a rap for us today? I'm like, <laughs> if you've done the work, or if you get to question 10, we'll do a rap. <laughs> do, you, do you do a different rap for every every lesson then? It must take a lot of work. It must take longer than preparing the lesson. Sometimes it can. <laughs> Bobby Seagull, so if anyone has any questions about anything mathsy or if you've got some homework due in tomorrow, you can just give me a call and it'll help you out. Sitting next to Bobby, we have a materials scientist and that's Rachel Oliver. She's from the University of Cambridge. What actually is a materials scientist, Rachel? Well, They used to call material scientists metallurgists and then basically people figured out you could make stuff out of things that weren't metals but you still needed to actually do some science to understand them. So pretty much if it's solid and you can make something out of it I'm interested in the structure of that stuff and how you make it work better so that we don't just go oh look this material's like this but how can we change it, how can we change the structure and then how can we use that to get better performance out of that material so that it does useful things for everybody in the real world. um when you say you're a material scientist, do they sort of think you're talking fabric and curtains and things? Yeah, so when I said I was going to do material science at university, one of my mum's friends did say, oh, lovely, textile, such a good career for a girl. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Whoops, oh dear, I bet that went down like a Led Zeppelin. There's another material bit, for you. Yeah. <laughs> so anything to do with how the world around you is constructed and made and manufactured and optimised, Rachel is your person. And uh, last but not least, we actually have a biologist and ant expert. That's Chris Poole. He's from the University of... Uh, he's from Royal Holloway. Have you got an anti-fact for us, Chris? Yeah, so one of my favourite facts about social insects is that the queens are so extraordinarily long-lived. The termite queens hold the record for the longest living insect in the world. And I wondered if you guys wanted to guess how long do you think they actually live? Ooh, three years. Bobby, you're the, you're the maths yeah. person. You're good with numbers. How long is it? I was going to probably say like 18 to 24 months. Yeah, so maybe a honeybee queen would live about that long, but termite queens live much, much longer. So, the... 100 years? Okay, not quite that long. <laughs> so the longest living ant queen is about 30 years. And the... Yeah, and termite queens hold the record at 50 years. Wow. So half a century. That, that, that really is a very, very long time. <laughs> and do, do you know what the person who studies ants is called? One of you? What, yeah, what, what are you? You're a myrmecologist. Yeah. So what do you call a collection of you lot then? Are you a murmur of myrmecologists or, or perhaps a, a sort of... What yeah. is it? When ants run around, they, f- they formicate, don't they? That's the, they yeah. collect, that's the term yeah. for ants running around. So is there a sort of formication of myrmecologists? You know? Perhaps. I haven't thought about it before. <laughs> Let's kick off with this one for you, Giles. I've heard that eating raw food is better than eating cooked food because the body has to do more to break it down. Is this true? What do you think? I think it depends on what you mean by better for you. Now, if you talk about calories, then it is true that cooking increases caloric availability. So briefly, caloric availability is how many calories you'll get out of the food rather than as compared to how many calories are actually in the food. So 100 calories of sugar is 100 calories of sugar. 
But if you take 100 calories of sweet corn and you look in the loo the next day, you clearly haven't absorbed anywhere close to 100 calories of sweet corn. Now, with regards to cooking, um, if you ate raw celery, that's six calories pr- pretty much for a medium stick of raw celery. Whereas if you cook it, you get 30 calories, okay, just just by cooking the celery. So if you are looking to reduce your calorie intake, then yes, cooking it, you get more calories. But if you don't cook it, then you get less. But then cooking also does a lot more. For example, it kills parasites. And also there are certain minerals and vitamins that are only made available from the food after you cook it. So I think the answer is from a pure caloric point of view, maybe, but is it necessarily better for you? That depends. So the whole argument about how many calories you burn off in your jaw muscles, crunching things up, which is another consideration. That, that's, that's really kind of nothing. Do you, you, you reckon, sorry, Rachel, I, I have the microphone turned on. Actually, if you eat celery, you're using up more calories eating it than you get from your stick of raw celery. Is that actually true? No, no, that's, that's, that is, it is a myth, oh. but, but, it's, but, it's, but it's six calories per stick, which is not, a, it's just barely a myth. You know, <laughs> is, that, hang on, is that six calories per stick, how much you consume eating the stick or how much you obtain by eating the stick? As um, in, when I say consume, as in how much you burn off eating the stick? How many calories do you need to munch it up? How many calories? So, so in other words, if uh, it depends how many calories are in a in a stick of celery. So, for example, it's probably about six percent, broadly speaking, from eating a stick of celery compared to a hundred percent when you eat, when you eat a hundred calories of sugar, for example. Yeah, thank you, Charles. Mm-hmm. Bobby, we got one here for you. Um, this came into us uh, from one of our very own naked scientists, and that was Katie. Why do I hate maths? Somehow, I don't think she's alone. Bobby, what do you think? No, she will join armies of people, sadly. So actually being a maths teacher and not an English teacher, I, I consulted Wikipedia to see what hate means. And let me, let me read you the definition of hate. It's deep and extreme dislike, especially invoking feelings of anger or resentment. And that's, that's a strong word. It's not dislike or it makes me a little bit queasy. This is like an intense feeling. Um, but, but lots of people have had the double maths feeling. I mean, who here had double maths at school? Bet you all had double maths, mm. and, and who really, really looked forward to it? Bet you, bet you didn't. Yeah, yeah. I liked Wasn't it. scientist, Rachel. Yeah, I'm a geek. <laughs> maths is at the heart of everything. Did, did you like maths, Chris? No, I hated it. Yeah, really, really, really yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. awful at it. Oh, there you go. So all the bio people in here, the biologically <laughs> focused people, fluffy science. We call yeah, the, fl- the fluffy, <laughs> the fluffologists like me and Giles yeah. and Chris. We, we, we're in Katie's camp, Bobby. Yeah, there are different types of mathematicians. I think everyone here is probably competent at maths, but I think there's one startling fact. I work with a called National Numeracy and they said that 50% of working adults in the UK have the numeracy skills of an 11 year old. They asked them to work out a 10% increase in the salary. So with or without a calculator, half the working population can't do that. So that's like really damning statistic of where maths is in this country. Mm. So what are we going to do about it? I think partly it's cultural, partly it's reputational. So I think it's easy to trash maths. Again, if you go with your friends to the pub and have a drink and you say that you do maths, everyone starts patting each other on the back saying, oh, I couldn't do maths at school. I was terrible. Whereas if you said you couldn't read, people look at you like, what? You're, you're a cultural <laughs> philistine. You don't read? But they say that about opera, don't they? I've noticed that if, if you admit to not liking art or sport mm. or, or opera or something, people will look, look at you like you're some kind of cultural prior. But if you turn around and say, I don't like science, then people do actually laugh. And yeah. they say, oh, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's all foreign language to me. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how there is that distinction. Yeah. And again, I do think elements of cultural aspects to this. I've got cousins who are living and raised in India, and I'm ethnically Indian. 
And I compare my cousin's attitudes in India to my cousin's in the UK attitude to mathematics. And in India, when people do well at maths, they seem to say, oh, you're doing well at maths because you're working hard. Whereas in England, if kids do well, they're attributed to a talent and flair. And I think as a society, as soon as we attribute mathematical competence to flair, it's easy for the rest of us to say, oh, I don't have any flair, so I can never be good at maths. Do you think, to a certain extent, though, it's down to the teacher? Because someone like you who stands up in front of a class, does a rap, engages the class, gets their attention from the get-go, like you've got all of our intention in here you made us laugh and then begin to think that's the critical thing isn't it we need more good teachers yeah i think teachers definitely play a role but also parents play a role so again at parents evenings every time a a mom or a dad says to their child don't worry you're failing at maths i fail too so as a society we need to stop accepting that maths failure is a good thing we need to start saying no actually it's not a good thing what can we do to turn it around like the social norm it's okay yeah. to to be a little bit on the large side these days Giles you're nodding um in your in no, I'm not saying you're a bit on the large side I think you're, you're interested <laughs> in people who gain a bit too much weight and people have shown that it, the social norm has sort of crept up that it's okay to to sort of not worry about your diet so much as perhaps we did historically and it's the same with with this isn't it yeah I think so it's it's because it's acceptable to say oh no I'm and I say it I'm mm. equally to blame yeah. to say I'm terrible at maths mm. and no, no I hated it it's, mm. it's cool now am I Terrible at maths? I hope not. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to, to, to get end up and end up getting a PhD. But you're you're absolutely right. Just in what we said, we have immediately painted ourselves into a terrible at maths um, um, corner. Even though I don't think we're going to be terrible at it. Not just maths that things and people hate, is it, Chris? Because insects have a bit of a bad rap too, don't they? Yeah, definitely. And I mean. This is also probably quite psychological. So I know my sister was terrified of spiders and I think that comes from my mum being terrified of spiders. So I think it is this inherited cultural phenomenon. But at the same time, I do think some spiders and other insects uh, evolutionarily might have posed a threat to us. So maybe there is, you know, well, some malaria, reason. hundreds yeah. of millions of cases a year, dengue, 50, mm-hmm. 100 million cases a year of that, the mosquito spread diseases. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose we have a reason to, to fear these things. Yeah, we? definitely. Yeah. Plus they're hairy and scary. I'm trying sorry. frantically to turn microphones sorry, on in sorry enough time this. here. Everyone keeps talking so quickly. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Now, Rachel, um, we've got this question here for you from Janet. What's the smallest material we can build things with? So, Rachel, the smallest material we can build things with. What do you think? Okay. Well, the smallest sort of building block of any material is an atom. Okay, and I guess that's the smallest thing you can build things with. You hear about splitting the atom. It's totally true. You can split an atom, but if you have a brick, which is something you're used to building things with, and you split that brick, you kind of get two small bricks. If you split an atom into two pieces. It's like splitting a brick and ending up with, say, two balls of cotton wool or something. You end up with something completely different. So our smallest building block of materials is a single atom. And actually, people do build things with single atoms. So there are technologies whereby you can take a tiny, tiny needle, really, really sharp, and essentially use it to push materials around. And there's some guys at IBM in the US, and they use single atoms on surfaces to build what they call quantum corrals. Now, a corral, I guess, in Old West terms, is basically like a fence. So they build a fence out of atoms on a surface and you can actually look at pictures of them with every atom in a circle and they're not enclosing kind of little tiny cows like a corral would have done in the Old West. They're enclosing electrons, which are negatively charged particles, and then looking at how the electrons behave 
in that little fence they've built. Why actually is it useful to be able to fiddle with atoms like this, though? Is, is this actually going to help us in the future if we can engineer atoms in this way? Well, potentially. So everybody uses, I'm sure, like laptops and tablet computers and all this kind of thing. And those computers have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And as they get smaller and smaller, they get faster and faster. And the reason that computing companies like IBM, Intel, anybody like that, are really interested in building with atoms is they're pushing the size of these little switches inside computers right down to the atomic scale. It's a tough thing to do though, but there are actually even now companies out there who are developing like industrial scale technologies building at the atomic scale. Is it also relevant that, I I think it was Chris McManus who came on this programme, he wrote the book about being right and left-handed and said that actually asymmetry begets asymmetry. So if you want to, to build something asymmetric, you start with particles themselves that are asymmetric. So if you want to build, say, a really strong component for a jet engine, Mm. then you actually have to start with the right things in the right configuration down at the atomic scale so that you get something on the big scale that actually has those properties. It's just amplified up to a big scale that we can see. Yeah, I mean, in terms of things like a jet engine, you need exactly the right ingredients but the metals that are used in jet engines there the important length scale there is very very tiny so down at what i would call the nanometer scale people might be more happy in millimeters and a nanometer is like a millionth of a millimeter and you have to engineer the structure of that material right down at that scale in order for the jet engines to work the thing that's tough about jet engines is that they have to keep working at really, really high temperatures. And you can't let the material get longer, expand by even very, very small fractions at those high temperatures. Otherwise, the blades of the jet engine will start bumping into the casing and the aeroplane goes slightly bang, which is not not really what you want. Well, the claim that's made by the companies that make and engineer these jet engines is that the gas stream that's running through the middle of that engine is at about 1500 degrees centigrade and the materials that the engine itself is made of melt at less than that temperature so you're actually containing and constraining and using a gas stream that's at more than the melting temperature of the thing you've made your engine from and you have to engineer it to withstand that which is just phenomenal yeah. work really isn't it yeah it's amazing and there are there are different ways that materials can deform and expand and change shape and some of those we have to worry about at like normal room temperature, but some of them only start when you get close to the melting temperature. So that means that you have to really be very clever about how you engineer stretches right up at those really high temperatures. Rachel, thank you. We have a panel of experts here on The Naked Scientists who are taking your science questions. If there's something you've always wanted to know, give us a tweet to at Naked Scientists or send in your questions to chris at nakedscientists.com and we'll get those questions into one of our future programmes like this one. Still to come, we're asking, can we store information in light? Can food allergies be inherited? And will nanobots destroy the world? Chris, here's one for you. It comes from Caitlin, who is in Nottingham. How do ants know if the Queen dies? Are they telepathic? So, telepathic ants. Fact or fiction, Chris? That's, well, to be honest, it's not a far cry from what they're able to do. So, I guess if telepathy is being able to sense someone's emotions or their internal state or what they're thinking, ants kind of do have a way of being able to do that. So, they use chemicals, smells, pheromones, and queens actually emit what we call a queen pheromone in the colony. And what this pheromone does is actually tells the workers in the colony that she is the queen. But it actually has another role as well. So it acts as an infertility sort of signal. So it suppresses the ovaries of the workers and stops them from reproducing. So if the queen dies, she obviously stops emitting that signal. 
Um, and that's how they are able to tell whether or not the queen is present anymore. And actually, the workers themselves can then start laying eggs and trying to get some reproduction. Is that what happens? So if the queen is lost for yeah. whatever reason, then will, will a new queen emerge from amongst the ranks, if you like? So it really depends on the species. But in your sort of average ant, then generally no. So the queen, once she's lost, she's lost. And in bumblebees as well, once she's lost, she's lost. So it, what happens to them? What happens to the colony? Does it just sort of go into anarchy or something? Yeah, so again, it depends on the species. But if it's a species where workers are able to still lay eggs, they can lay male eggs. So they haven't been fertilised, so they're not able to make males or make females, but they can lay male eggs, which will basically disperse and mate with the queen. So it's an opportunity for, if the queen dies, it's this sort of second resort for the workers to get some reproduction in. Ah, so the genes live on, even though the colony itself may be the end of the road for them. Rachel? So if they've, I don't know, made some great structure that they live in, in the end, does everybody in that one die and then that's kind of left empty? And then is it just left forever or does another team of ants move in? Yeah, so as I said, the workers can only produce males uh, because they've been mated. And without the queen there producing more workers, then obviously the colony eventually just dwindles, the workers die off. And yeah, that, that sort of residence is empty um, and in honeybees you might get colonies actually moving in and trying to utilize that space and in ant colonies because they're just made out of soil they'll just eventually collapse or another colony might use it yeah my garden looks like a lunar landscape from all these ants nests <laughs> that have sprung up i wish a few of them would actually die and i don't mean that in a nasty way they're just ruining my garden mm. blinking things uh, we have uh, richard who's on the telephone who wants to talk about flu hello richard hello chris far away uh, i've got a friend and he's totally against flu vaccines And he sent me an internet link on uh, some research done recently which suggests that people who've been vaccinated spread the flu around 630% more than people who haven't been vaccinated. What do you reckon? Well, first of all, and thank you for an interesting question, uh, Richard. The flu vaccine in an average year is about 75% effective. Now, what that means is that if you take an average person with an average dose of flu and an average dose of flu vaccine, they'll be protected 75% of the time. But flu isn't just one single entity. There are many different strains of flu. There's two different types of flu A, what we call flu A. There's H1N1, swine flu, and there's also H3N2. And there's also another human form of flu called flu B. All of them can cause epidemics and all of them are represented in the vaccine all of them continuously mutate and change and therefore you have to update the vaccine year on year on year. So you have to keep having the vaccine every year in order to make sure your immunity stays current. Now, the other problem with this is that not every year the vaccine is 75% effective. Some years the vaccine may not be as effective as others. This year has been a particularly bad year for the flu vaccine. In fact, one of the types of flu that was in the vaccine, the B strain, didn't actually work at all because the virus had mutated and changed. And the other type of flu A, the H3N2 that was in the vaccine, that didn't work very well either. It was about 20% effective for various reasons. So therefore, people who had had the flu vaccine this year were protected against one of the circulating strains, but not the other ones. And that meant that they might go around thinking that they're protected from flu and it's not going to be a risk for them and for anybody else. And therefore, they're actually more likely to be spreading flu. Now, there was an interesting study that got done by the British Medical Journal about 10, 15 years ago, got published in the British Medical Journal. And what they did was to ask people, have you had flu this winter? And then they took samples from those people and tested their blood for antibodies against the flu. And what they found is that about half the people who said they didn't have flu that year had had flu, as proved by the antibodies that were in their bloodstream. 
So in other words, you can probably get people who have a low level infection with flu. They don't know they've got it. They don't feel ill because they've got partial immunity to the flu, but they're nonetheless fully infectious. And they go about their business potentially infecting other people and spreading flu around and they don't know they've done it. So on the whole, summarising, flu vaccines are very good. They're money well spent. They do save lives and they help to protect patients in hospitals and care homes and they help to protect kids in schools. They help to protect people with serious illnesses like diabetes, kidney disease, heart disease and so on. But at the same time, we have to make sure everyone has one because otherwise you're leaving a gaping gap in our defences and anyone who hasn't been vaccinated then catches the flu and then they're fully infectious and they give it to other people. So it is effective. We do like the flu vaccine, but at the same time, there has to be good compliance and uptake in the population or it's not going to work. Thank you very much for the question. Back to some more questions. One for you, Bobby. Uh, Liz sent this in on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. What is the birthday paradox? Is it actually true? So what, what is this? I've not heard of the birthday paradox. What does she mean? Yeah, so actually, so you might think that the most recognised song in the world might be perhaps a Stormzy rap or a Taylor Swift song or Ed Sheeran, who seems to be everywhere all the time. But actually, according to the Guinness Book of Records, it's Happy Birthday, which is the most recognised song in the English language. So it's only appropriate that the birthday paradox is something which is important in maths. But So the question is, what's the minimum number of people required, let's say in a room, for the chance of two people sharing the same birthday being more than 50-50? And obviously it means the same day and month, not the year. Should we ask the crew? Should yeah, we, what, what, Giles, what, Giles, what do you think? 50-50. Yeah, so the chance of two people in a room having the same birthday being more than 50-50, how many people do you need in a room to guarantee there will be more than 50-50 chance? Oh my goodness, uh, about 180 people? Chris? 250. You see, I reckon it's quite low, maybe 30. Rachel's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Intuitively, who was the massive? Intuitively, we seem to think it's quite a high number, but actually it's 23 people. With 23 people, mathematically, the chances of two people in that room sharing the same birthday is slightly more than 50%. Now, are you going to show your working? Yes. Yeah. all good students. <laughs> we'll, 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 try, we'll try to. So this is one of those things where with a whiteboard and paper, this is quite easy to demonstrate. But without, we'll, we'll try. And a good analogy is... I'm going to tr- write this down as okay. you go. So first, let me just give you an analogy first before we start. So one way to think of it is imagine you had a 365-sided Dice, no, die is singular, we'll say dice, it sounds nicer. And after 23 throws, you're more than likely than not to get two of the same numbers of the dice land. Where does the 23 number come from? The 23? Yeah. Oh, so we're about to get there now. Okay, okay, right. Okay, Okay. step one. So the probability of two people sharing the same birthday in a group is one minus the probability of no one sharing the same birthday. So we've got that, yeah? Right. So it's one minus the probability of no one sharing it. Okay. So let's work out the probability of no one sharing the same birthday. So in a group of two people, firstly, it's 365 out of 365. That's essentially the first person can be born on any day. Then you multiply that by 364 out of 365. And I'll explain the second fraction. So that second person can be born on any day apart from the the first day that the person is born. That you're born in, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's 364 choices. So that's for two people. So if we expand it to three people now, we've got one less option. So that original multiplication, we multiply that, okay, behind me, 363 over 365. Yep. So if you keep on doing that, adding 362 over 365, all the way to 23 people, at this stage, you get this multiplication to be 0.493. 
if you cast your mind back a, a minute you want or so, it 50 50 yeah, yeah so it's one minus that yep. so once you get to 23 people the chance of 51% yeah Rachel's going to dispute your maths now. No, Here I'm not. Go. I'm just going to point out I'm not nearly that clever, but I am basically an engineer by training. So my pragmatic version of answering the question is that I know that in a <laughs> typical school class, you yeah. quite often get two kids sharing yeah. the same birthday. So therefore, 30 was a good guess from yeah. that point of view. So that's view. the benefit of wisdom. Absolutely. So, yeah. wisdom. Yeah, so absolutely. no maths really, just like common sense. And just on the, on the birthday paradox, if anyone's a football, anyone a football fan here? Josh, football you look football. like a footballer. Are you not a football fan? American football fan. American uh, football okay. fan. Okay, Chris, you're a footballer? Unfortunately not, no. Uh, can you indulge me on my football-related birthday Go on then. paradox? Okay, Go on then. so we've got the World Cup coming up, and this is actually a great test ground for the birthday paradox because, coincidentally, the number of people in every registered World Cup squad is 23 people, and there are 32 squads in the World Cup. So if people want to test whether this theory is true... I think the World Cup squads get announced on the 4th of June. Go to the FIFA website that day, check out all the squads, be a nerd like me, and yeah. see how many squads. And in the last two World Cups, I think in the 2014 World Cup, there were 16 squads out of 32 that had two people training the same birthday. And the World Cup before, there were 15 out of 32, so just under 50%. So it does work. I'm guessing, but I think people will be looking at the FIFA website for reasons other than who's got a birthday <laughs> in common. But thank you for that lovely update. We enjoyed it very much. Back to you, Rachel. Helen on Facebook has got a question for you. Can we use light to store information? And if so, how much light do we need? Light and information. That's a really cool question. So storing information with light is actually quite hard because storing light, keeping it kind of stable in one place is difficult. But transmitting information with light is actually something we do all the time. So you can take this back like a really long time. So I guess even in ancient times, people used fire to send signals. And certainly in Elizabethan times, there were these beacons set up all around the country, which were there to be lit if they saw an invading armada coming from Spain. And eventually they did, and they lit their beacons and warned London and, I guess, Dover of what was happening and what they needed to do. In the modern world, oh, you hear adverts on the telly for super fast fibre optic broadband. So that's a kind of slightly more sophisticated way, but it's basically sending pulses of light down long, thin pieces of glass to send information about the internet. So there's the question, how small can we go with like, how little light? can we use okay so we talked before a little bit about atoms as like the smallest piece of a material that you can have the smallest piece of light you can have is something called a photon it's what we call fundamental particle of light and it's a really amazing thing we can actually do experiments which show that light is a stream of particles and at the same time light is also a wave which sounds completely contradictory and we can transmit or store or move information on a single photon and interestingly you can think of photons not just as being particles, but of point in a specific direction. That's a property of the light called its polarisation. For example, I know light pointing up is a one, light pointing sideways is a zero would work. And then you can transfer information like that on a single photon, the tiniest possible particle of light. And in, in essence, this is how we're transmitting data at terabit rates all over the world now and fibre optics for the internet, isn't it? I mean, that's how programmes like this are streaming all over the world at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we're not using single photons yet. We're using pulses with lots of photons in. That's partly because when it goes down the fibres, quite a lot of the light gets absorbed into the glass. So if we only send it on single photons, we would lose out. But there are schemes for using single particles of light to transfer information perfectly securely. So you can use it then to basically keep really, really valuable information very, very safe. And there's even then schemes for how you deal with the fact that you lose large chunks of your photons down your fibre that gets absorbed into the material. Rachel, thank you very much. 
The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and I'm joined this week by a panel of experts who are ready to take on your science questions. With me are mathematician Bobby Siegel, geneticist Giles Yeo, material scientist Rachel Oliver, and Chris Pull is talking all things insects. If you'd like to ask a question for a programme like this, you can tweet it to at Naked Scientists, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can find us on our Facebook page. Now, we're going to have a little pause to have a quiz. This is where actually I put some questions to the panellists and then we're going to have two teams. Now, team one is going to be Giles and Bobby and team two is going to be Rachel and Chris. We have three rounds and you get a bing or a bong um, according to whether or not you get it right or wrong. The team at uh, the end of the three rounds who has the highest score uh, goes home as our big brains of the week. The team who has the lower score doesn't. Um, if there is a tie break in that unlikely circumstance, then we actually have a tie break question for you. So team one, Bobby and Giles, here is your question. You may confer. Please do confer audibly so everyone at home can hear your thought processes and you teach them to think like a scientist too. Question one, what happened first, the year that fluorine was discovered or the only draw in the history of the Oxford and Cambridge boat race? What do you both think? So, okay, boat race started about 1880s. I think so, it was 160th. Fl- yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. So, so fluorine must have been discovered before. Is it fluorine? Fluorine. Must have been discovered before. We're going to go with fluorine. Yeah. So you're going fluorine was first? Yes. Yep. Fine. I'm sorry to say, the only draw in the history of the Oxford and Cambridge boat race was in 1877. Fluorine came along nine years later, 1886. Rachel and Chris. Quiz question two, which happened first? The invention of the catapult or the first use of negative numbers? Oh, God. So the catapult, (laughs) it strikes me as something kind of medieval. You know, people throwing rocks at castles. Negative numbers. Mm. Do we think the Romans could do negative numbers? They understood about zero. Maybe they could do negative numbers. Yeah, I feel like numbers have been around a really long time. Number has been around a really long time. We're going to go with negative numbers. <laughs> no. Did, did you know that, Bobby? You know, the no, I wasn't quite is... sure. I was thinking of negative ima- imaginary numbers, but I wasn't thinking of negative integers. No, the, the answer is the catapult. That came along in 400 BC. Negative numbers in the Han Dynasty in China, 200 BC. So you're both all both teams doing very well at the moment. Your net score is zero. Um, appropriately enough on that note, round two is called What's Bigger? So um, hopefully your score by the end of this round. Back to team one, Bobby and Giles. Okay. Which is bigger, the lifetime of an adult housefly or the time taken for the Apollo astronauts to reach the moon? Okay. How long did it take? About three days, four days? To reach it took the moon? three days or four days. The average housefly, right? Yeah. Um, the average housefly. How long did it live? All the way from maggots all the way to the thing, or during the fly bit? Oh, they might no, be during long. the fly bit. Oh. Or just the fly bit. I okay. think we're going to have to go with the moon because if you include the maggot stage, then, then it's long. definitely but longer. But it's, it's just the fly annoying yeah, part. Yeah, just the fly annoying okay. part. So we're going to go with the moon. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> um, no. Insect man, Chris, do you know the answer to this one? 
How long I don't. Is it doesn't no, I imagine they only live a couple of days. but <laughs> Some do. Actually, okay. things like the glowworms that yeah. turn into a gnat live just for a few days long enough to mate. But your average nice meaty big blue bottle housefly, they last two to four weeks. They're quite long-lived, actually. Oh. It took the Apollo team three days to reach oh. the moon. The New Horizons Pluto probe, which was the fastest spacecraft ever created, which went out past Pluto last year, launched in 2006, that did the same journey in just eight and a half hours. But certainly the fly mm. trumps it. Right, Rachel and Chris, which is last the average length of the small intestine or the length of nose hair grown by a human over a lifetime. <laughs> now, I know that the small intestine is surprisingly long, yeah. but I have no idea how much nose hair a human grows in a lifetime. Isn't it like a few millimetres a day? Oh, not a day. Chris is just, just wafting his nose hair out of the way so he can get to the microphone. Today, it would be like down to our feet yeah, quite yeah, yeah. quickly. I mean, Every... how long your hair is also depends on how often your hair falls out, but I'm also not sneezing that much nose but, hair. I, I, mean, I know, but it, like, as men get older, it grows longer, it right? It does. So, they do get quite hairy. Because you see old hairy. men sprouting it. Like, yeah, so. <laughs> Sincere apologies to any older members of the audience. <laughs> what uh, what are we going for then? Are we going nose hair or intestines, you two? I feel like it must be nose hair because so far the obvious answers have been the wrong ones. So. <laughs> okay, given I got the last one wrong, let's go nose hair. <laughs> Giles, do, do you um, do you know the answer to this one? I did not know that. I mean, I know the gut is pretty long, but I have no idea about nose hair growth. I think you should get out what you've got in your bag under the table. So uh, what I have got with me is a life-size knitted gut. <laughs> and, um, and who, so, who knitted this? Who knitted this, Charles? So this is knitted actually by a consortia of professors and secretaries and research managers and um, at the Institute of Metabolic Science. And this is a life-size knitted gut, otherwise known as the food to poop tube. And so this is the mouth oh, bit. Oh, fantastic! And then if I hand, if I can hand hand it around, so that's the. I've got the anus. That's the mouth. No, I've got no, the no, that's the mouth. I've got the tongue. It's okay. Yeah. And then if I then hand. There we go. That's the size. Goodness, this is huge. Of a, of a. It's all the way around the studio. All around. Okay, the studio. so I've got the tongue at this end. Mm-hmm. I've got an esophagus, and then what's this bit? This is the stomach. That's is it? the stomach, and attached to it will be the liver, the pancreas, the gallbladder. Pancreas, green gallbladder. It's all color coded as well. This it is great. It's all gallbladder, because bile really is green, isn't it? That's what that's comes out the gallbladder. Then into this this first bit of the small pink tube. What's that? That this this is the whole thing. Is the small small it's intestine. The small intestine, and yeah. where all of the digestion actually happens. And so, depending on how far down. The food goes is how long it takes to digest. And the further down the food goes, the fuller you actually feel. So well, before I mean, it breaks down. Before it actually breaks down. Before it breaks down to its uh, constituent parts to be absorbed, the longer that takes, the fuller you actually so feel. So what should I be swallowing to get as much food as far as possible down my small intestine so I feel as full as possible then? What's, what's a good food stuff to do that? Okay, for one thing is actually protein because of all the, the protein to fat to carbohydrates in that order takes the longest to digest. So, and so that's how the Atkins diet works, for example. When you actually eat a lot of protein in, in the Atkins diet, so much of it travels further down the gut, you get fuller, you eat less, you lose weight. And uh, on that note, if you are intrigued as to how long the intestine really is, the average length of the small intestine, including Giles's knitted gut, is about six metres. Over a lifetime, though, on average, a human grows two metres of nose hair. So actually, you weren't wide of the mark there, Chris, when you were suggesting <laughs> that, although two millimetres a day yeah. does seem <laughs> quite prolific. 
Next question, round three, is science fact or science fiction? And thank you, Giles, that was brilliant. This is for Bobby and Giles. True or false, ants have two stomachs. What do you think, Bobby and Giles? Ants have two stomachs. Okay, so cows have two stomachs. Cows have two stomachs. Why would ants need... So cows have two stomachs because they eat grass. That's right, so they need a rumen in order to to, to ferment the grass. What do ants eat? Grass. Grass, so they... They would probably need... I've eaten the bottom of, a, of an ant in Australia once. It was very, very... That's a lemony flavour, isn't it? A very lemony yeah, flavour, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Slightly um, off topic we... here, though. What, what's yeah. the answer to the <laughs> quiz? Do you, do you reckon it's true? I'm going to go with true. Yeah, should we go for that? You're going for true? true? You're going for true? Yes! <laughs> Finally. Yeah, they, they do. It's, it's so actually they can enjoy they can enjoy two courses. Of course, yes. there's the main course and then the anti-pasta. Okay. So, oh. ah. No, no, it, it is true. Did you know that, Chris? Did you know that ants have two stomachs? I didn't know. <laughs> got, got, got the ant man, caught him out. One of the stomachs is for holding food for their own consumption. That is the anti-pasta. Yeah. The second one's to hold food that they're going to share with other ants or take back to the queen. Um, this is the process. No, do you know the name of the process, Chris, of doing this? Yes. Trophil access. Very good. Troughing. There you go. Isn't that appropriate? You won't forget that one in a hurry. I thought this this was called the crop. I never thought of it as being an actual stomach. Uh, Now he's disputing the answer to the quiz. (laughs) Okay, let's move on quickly before he catches us out. Right, team two, Rachel and Chris. Now, they've got one point, so it's it's sort of on this one. So this is pressured moment for you. True or false? Triscophobia is fear of the number 30. I, I, like know, it, I know that one. Um, I feel like I know what. I feel like well, something, right? Is the French for thirty? So, but is there really a word for the fear of the number thirty? Maybe there is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else it means, though. So, what do you think? You think true or false? <laughs> I'm going to go true. <laughs> You're going true. No, it's oh, what? It's actually, I'm going for that wrong. It's this. Oh. <laughs> actually, it's not. It's not. I, I pressed the wrong button. Um, it's, no, you don't know which was the right answer. I'll tell you. Um, actually, it's wrong. It is fear of the number three. Oh, I tell you okay. what, the tiebreaker was good, though, and we almost got there. Would you like to hear the tiebreaker yeah. all the same? Because it, it is quite interesting, the tiebreaker. To the nearest ten, how many multiples of their own body weight can a dung beetle move at one time? So I'll ask you one at a time so you can all speculate. It's quite amazing, this. I mean, we'll come to Chris last because he probably has the best chance of getting it right. But, Giles, what do you think? Dung beetle, how much poop can they move in one go? A uh, hundred times. OK, Giles is going hundred. Bobby? I've written down 200. Bobby's going 200. We're, we're going up. Can you see Bobby's 200 and raise him at all, Rachel? Oh, no, I'm going to go 30. I think 30. it's a good number. Chris? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to... So I actually just was at a talk on... And I'm trying to remember what she said. <laughs> but, I mean, they're not huge... It's a good lecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say 50 times. 1,140 wow. times its own body weight. It's amazing. And do you know they even navigate using the stars, dung beetles? Yeah. They, they've, isn't that true, isn't it, Chris? They, they follow well, stars to work out which direction not they're going to... quite. So no? they, the, they can't quite see the light from the stars not strong enough but they can see the milky way that's bright enough for them to actually navigate by and they use that to roll their ball of dung yeah. in the right direction yeah thank you very much so our winners our big brains of the week giles and bobby had one point <laughs> you, you, you only got one right i mean like, before you celebrate too much <laughs> and uh, and our losers uh, but nonetheless uh, they redeem themselves by by knowing a bit more about dung beetles was uh, rachel and chris well done to you This is The Naked Scientists, and we have a panel of experts who are taking on your science questions this week. Still to come, what's the most useless number, mathematically speaking, and will nanobots destroy the world? 
Now, we've got this one for you, Giles, from James. He's at the competition in Oxford. Can food allergies be inherited? Food allergies and inheritance, yes or no? Mm, I th- the answer is uh, yes, but it's more complicated than that. So I think the first thing I want to do is just to... There's a big difference between intolerance and allergy. So an intolerance is almost like you can be lactose intolerant because you lack the enzyme to break down lactose. An allergy is when you have an immune response to the protein within milk, for example, for, for, for milk allergy. So an intolerance can be inherited, and that's going to be almost Mendelian. So, for example, because a very specific gene um, needs to break down alcohol and need to break down lactose, so that's inherited. Allergy is more complicated because it's an immune response. So while there is a genetic element to it, it's not like Mendel's peas. You can't say for sure if my parents were allergic, then I'm going to be allergic. So there is a genetic element to it, but it is not Mendelian. So in other words, it's not uh, for sure that you're going to inherit it if your parents happen to be allergic to a given product or item. Thank you, Charles. Quick uh, clarification required for you, Rachel. R. Middleton has emailed to chris at thenakedscientist.com and says, I would really like to know about storing information with light like the questioner asked rather than transmitting it. Is there any information you can impart on that? So the difficulty is storing the light without absorbing it. Okay, So you can do that in a thing called a cavity. Now, in the simpler sense, a cavity could basically just be two mirrors and you reflect the light backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And we can make cavities that will store light, but probably not for very long. So fractions of a second might be the amount of time that we could store a single particle of light that I was talking about earlier. So you can store information in the form of light, and there are ideas for using that, but the problem is the storing part, not the information part. So if you had a box which was entirely mirrored on its interior and you put some light in there, would it not just ricochet around forever in the box? Your problem is the entirely mirrored, so you don't ever manage to make a mirror which is 100% reflective that always bounces back the light. They're always going to absorb some of the light as well. Or or some of the light's going to leak out of the box. So in your theoretical perfect mirrored box, yeah, you're doing great. But actually making one of those is so difficult that the word, word impossible is probably quite relevant. Thank you, Rachel. Quick one uh, from Tim, which uh, came in for you, Bobby. Why do we count in tens? Is there a better number to count in? Why do we have this number preference for ten? What do good, you think? Good question. Uh, so demonstration, put your hands out, count how many things you have, digits. There we go. <laughs> I'm hoping all of us have 10. <laughs> yeah. So About toes. Yeah, you could, could do. Those? So the reason we count in tens is historically because we have 10 fingers. Uh, but other cultures, other civilizations, different things. Aztecs have used 20. The Babylonians have used 60. There's some indigenous groups of people in South America that use three or four. And again, if we were um, happened to be based in the Simpsons land, Homer has eight fingers. So he could equally count in base eight. So really, it's just a quirk of our 10 fingers. Uh, being there. Thank you, Bobby. Very quick one for you, Chris. Heather on Facebook uh, wants to know, why don't insects get as big as dogs do? Yeah, I mean, so the largest insects today sort of are about 18 centimetres. And actually, a few years ago, there was a stick insect discovered in in China, which is actually 60 centimetres long. But, you know, back in, you know, 100, uh, 500 million years ago, there were insects the size of seagulls flying around. So there was a... The size of bobby seagulls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was um, basically a, a dragonfly which was flying around, which and also you have millipedes, which obviously aren't an insect, but they got up to two metres long. And the prevailing theory is that 
back then there was just a lot more oxygen in the atmosphere. And because they breathe passively through these network of air-filled tubes, the larger you get, the harder it is for that diffusion-based respiration to work. So it's kind of like if you were to, if you snorkel near the surface, it's easy for you to get enough air. But if you were sitting on the bottom of a swimming pool with, let's say, a three-meter-long snorkel, you can imagine how much harder it would be to get enough oxygen and enough CO2 back out. And that's essentially why we think um, insects are limited, because today the levels of oxygen are much lower than what they have been um, you know, back in very ancient times. So it's all down to oxygen. Thank you very much, Chris. Rachel, one for you, somewhat apocalyptic this, from Ted. Will nanobots destroy the world? What's a nanobot? Okay, so this, I think, comes from an idea which was originated by a guy called Eric Drexler, who is one of the fathers of nanotechnology. So nano is this sort of millionth of a millimetre length scale. And Eric Drexler came up with the idea of these tiny little robots that he'd hoped would be like really useful so they could essentially make things for us on that tiny scale and he thought well you know what you need is the robots to be able to make more robots and then they can make more of the useful things but then he started to worry about well maybe if the robots can make more of themselves then they can make more and more of themselves and kind of eat up everything in the lab they're in and then having eaten the lab they're in sort of set off across the city consuming and there's this idea of the grey goo where everything in the world gets turned into nanobots having said all of that I possibly should reassure listeners that I don't think it's very likely to happen. In terms of stuff that scientists can make at the moment, we're talking about things that don't self-replicate, they don't remake themselves, but they can self-assemble, they build themselves in the first place. Those sorts of processes, they're workable, we do them in my lab, but you have to provide very much exactly the right ingredients and exactly the right conditions, by which I might mean the temperature or the pressure, those kinds of things. So with current technologies, I don't think we need to be scared at all. However, it would be stupid to say, oh, this is physically impossible, because we know about self-replicating entities. But what we'd have to sort of design deliberately, really, is something that comes with its own power pack that is completely adaptable to all sorts of different environments, to different chemical sort of species being available that also carries all the information it needs in itself and yeah I mean we're starting to design life and life did evolve but it took quite a long time for then life to start from some kind of puddle on the barren earth and turn into what we have now and it's not actually turned out to be grey goo so I think we're probably safe. Good to know that material scientists have got our back. Thank you very much, Rachel. Now, Bobby, here's one for you. Sam's been in touch on Twitter and says, what's the most useless number? That is, that's something that's been insulting to a mathematician, really. Surely all numbers are precious, aren't they, to a mathematician? Yeah, so asking a mathematician what is a useless number is almost the reverse of asking a parent to select their favourite child. But if we must, we must give an answer. So let's take a time machine back to 16th century Italy. Let's go to Lombardy and let's meet uh, Gerolamo Cardano. So this uh, mathematician was a polymath. He actually did biology, physics, chemistry, philosophy, writing, even uh, dabbling in gambling. And he was looking at solutions to cubic equations. So for our listeners, we have linear equations, like you know the straight line, like my rap, y equals mx plus c. Then we've got our quadratics, that's an x square, looks like a smiley face, and then the cubics, where it's an X cubed type graph. So he was looking at solutions for these. And then he came across some solutions which were imaginary. So an example that he gave was, he said, what happens when you expand? So let's bear in mind again. So uh, five plus the square root of minus 15, and you multiply that by five 
minus the square root of minus 15. So if you can mentally picture that, you multiply the 5 and the 5, so we're doing double bracket expansion, boys and girls, you get 25. <laughs> then G- Giles has done it already in his head. <laughs> yeah. So you get the 25 there, so we get a minus 5 lots of root minus 15, and we got the opposite, a plus 5 lots of root minus 15, so they cancel out. And at the end we get minus lots of uh, the root of minus 15 squared. So let's see. So now we've got 25. We've got a minus minus 15. So that gives us 25 plus 15. It gives us 40. So what Cardano said was, he said it's in Italian, so I'm, I'm doing an English accent. Thus far does arithmetical subtlety go, of which this, the extreme is, as I have said, so subtle that it is useless. So he thought that the minus square root of 15, an imaginary number, was useless. But interestingly, over time, imaginary numbers became very useful. Who's planning on going on a holiday this summer, anyone? Pretty much everyone. Yeah, (laughs) taking taking a plane, I guess. And actually, air traffic relies on radar. And actually, radar uses complex computations where they distinguish stationary objects from moving ones. And for this, they use imaginary numbers because it makes the calculations a lot more manageable than if you just had straightforward, standard, real numbers. So there you go, imaginary numbers are real and not as useless as uh, Cardano thought. So there are useless numbers, but they're not really useless. Exactly. Thank you very much, Bobby. Uh, Stan is on the telephone. Hello, Stan. Hi, Chris. How are you? Very well. Fire away. Right. Basically, it's very briefly, when I snore, it makes my wife wake up. When she snores, it wakes me up. So when I snore, why doesn't it wake me up? Brilliant question. The answer is, Stan, that when you go to sleep, actually your brain disengages a lot of the flow of sensory information coming back into it. A good example of this is why you don't act out your dreams, for example. We know that we all dream, we do it every night, and we dream many, many times a night, probably about 20 times a night you have a dream. But you don't find yourself stalking uh, people around your house, jumping out the window and that kind of thing, because there is a specific structure in your brain stem, which is called the subcerulea region. And when you go to sleep and start to dream, this activates and it disengages the flow of information coming back out of your brain to tell your muscles what to do. And it also damps down the flow of information coming up your spinal cord, coming into you. So you're effectively disengaging your sensitivity to the things that you do yourself. There's also another region of the brain, which is where what's called the parietal lobe and the occipital lobe and the temporal lobe all meet. This area of the brain, this has a strong ability to suppress any sensory information coming into your body. So you can't tickle yourself, for example, because this area knows that you're about to tickle yourself and it says to your brain, to your consciousness, in a minute, I'm going to tickle myself. So when you feel the tickle sensation come in, it won't surprise you, you're expecting it. And because you're expecting it, it doesn't arouse you. It's the same with your snoring. You're making those noises yourself, you're suppressing your own sensory system so you are not aroused or woken up or stimulated by that sensation. But when someone else does it, because it's unpredictable and unexpected, we notice it. Great question. Giles, here's a very quick one for you, and it is from Rob, who's in London. Is it possible that dopamine neurotransmitters are playing a critical role in the regulation of food intake? Why do I feel so happy when I see my food arriving? Usually, in my case, it's because I've been sitting for ages in the restaurant. But what's he actually getting at, Giles? So I think, first of all, we feel happy when food arrives because the anticipation of food and actually when the taste of food will tickle a set of neurons in the brain that releases dopamines that actually makes you feel happy. Now, why would this be the case? You eat, I think, primarily to fulfill a metabolic need. So in other words, I have burned a 1,000 calories. I need to eat a 1,000 calories. 
The problem is that you need to eat more than a thousand calories, say 50,000 years ago in the Serengeti, because you're not guaranteed your next meal. And so what happens is you have to eat more than you need to buffer against the time when you actually don't have enough food. In order to make your body fight the I'm slightly full feeling to eat more, the chocolate cake, when it arrives, for example, it makes the chocolate cake taste so good, you know. And so it's the so-called dessert tummy. The dessert tummy is actually in your brain. So the dessert tummy are actually the dopamine neurons in your brain making the chocolate cake taste good so that you'll continue to eat it even though you're stuffed with uh, 2,000 calories of venison. And that, that's the making room even though you're full feeling that pretty, circuit in process pretty, when, when you say much. to the kids eat your greens and they say no i'm full and then you say would you like some chocolate cake for afters and they suddenly have room for it that's that system it's that system and the key thing there as well is caloric density so for example when you're actually thinking about eating your greens um, um because they're packed full of fiber the number of calories for every given you know gram of of celery as we talked about is, n- is not that high whereas chocolate which is high in fat and sugar then for every given gram, you get a lot of calories, which means that you can actually stuff them in all the little areas of your full stomach to make sure that you eat as much as possible. But the problem is, okay, in the time when there was a, f- a feast and famine, the problem is this has become toxic in our feast environment and, and is part of the problem with, uh, with obesity today. And just finishing the show where we began, Giles, you began and I took you to task about Monster Munch and things. I was just kidding. But how is the vegan diet working out for someone who normally, you, you would normally eat a, a normal sort of Western diet and you've put yourself on this vegan diet regime. How's it working out? It's very interesting. I can't eat enough. Okay. And so I've dropped, I've dropped half a stone in three weeks I was going to say, you do look like you've, you've lost a bit of weight. So you're saying you physically cannot eat enough to feel full? Nah, no. So what happens is I get full when I'm eating, but the food I'm, I'm getting full on is calorically less dense. So, you know, lentils and celery or something. You know, I'm just eating so, of, of the stuff where I'm mechanically full, but because I'm getting less calories out of it, then I get hungry quicker. Now, I don't tend to be a grazer. You know, I don't tend to actually snack a lot. And so I am actually getting into caloric deficiency. My, my wife's very excited about this, that I'm losing weight, it has to be said. And so and so, it's been very interesting for me, I have to say. And so I have lost the weight even whilst not cutting down on my food. I've been, I've been eating. I'm going to go home tonight. I'm going to have a great big bean burger. But I'm going to feel hungry uh, later in the evening. And because I can't eat pudding, I can't have uh, apple pie, I can't have anything with eggs or butter in it. I'm then not going to be able to have pudding to get my dessert tummy, to tickle my dopamine neurons. How have you coped with it? Because a lot of people say when they change their diet quite radically, all of a sudden they find that they do not feel right for a while, probably because their microbiome is a bit upset and they've they've tuned their microbiome to eating what they normally eat and then they suddenly make a diet switch and they say it takes a while to settle down. Are you coping okay with the total diet switch? I'm coping okay. I have to say that the first week, week and a half, I realise I'm only a few weeks in, I got a bit windy shall we say so so but the windiness has um the windiness has 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 gone away so no there has there was definitely an adaptation of my gut microbiome to this drastic change in my diet and do you think you'll carry on doing this afterwards or or are you going to be so glad to get back to a bacon sandwich (laughs) there are a lot of people out there who are getting all ready to be offended by by me doing this but um the reality is I think I'll probably stick to vegan a cup two to three times a week, actually. I think it's been good. I do think I eat too much meat. I do. And um, and now that I've actually spent nearly a month learning vegan recipes, I'm excited and I'm not as scared to actually cook the food. I think two to three times a week vegan is something that I probably will stick to. 
good message there for all of us and food for thought as well. Thank you very much, Giles. You'll have to tell us how you get on later. That's it for this week. Uh, you heard there from Giles Yeo, Chris Paul, Bobby Siegel and Rachel Oliver. The producer this week was Izzy Clark. Join us next time when we'll be launching our Senses Month. Up first, we'll be tuning in to the sense of hearing to find out how it works. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, where it's supported by the EPSRC, the SDFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, goodbye. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at atlassian.com slash teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts.